I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we break down the art and science of storytelling. This podcast is brought to you by Magnanimous Rentals. Cameras, lenses, lights, and much more at the lowest rental rates online. Magnanimous Rentals, every order submitted at magrents.com. That's M-A-G-R-E-N-T-S.com. Every order submitted receives a discount. Inexpensive production essentials ship right to your door. Magrents.com. Go Magnanimous. Listen, I've been working with Magnanimous Rentals for a few years, and I love it. I can't tell you how awesome it is to have a production trip, which I travel at least once a month or so, and I pack my bags and my luggage with my clothes, I hop on my plane, I reach my destination, I get to my hotel or my Airbnb, and boom, my equipment is there waiting for me nicely packaged up. My cameras, my lenses, tripods, lights, I didn't have to travel with any expensive or heavy equipment, and it just made everything a breeze. I do my shoot. I knock it out of the park, I pack the equipment back into the packaging it came in, and I stop by UPS or FedEx on the way back to the airport, and boom, it's back on its way to Magnanimous Rentals. Super easy, super affordable, and listen, if you have a production in-house for your business and you can't justify purchasing camera equipment, this is a perfect affordable alternative for you guys. Rent the equipment that you need and then send it back. Magnanimous Rentals, go check them out at magrents.com. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Six Second Stories, where we help you maximize your impact through short-form storytelling. You ever meet somebody that just gets it? You ever meet someone who gets it more than you do? Here at the Storytelling Lab, we talk about the power, the art and science of storytelling, and its ability to 
evoke empathy, to connect people, to build bonds and build trust, and to inspire action through storytelling. Well, today my guest is Brian Powell, the communication director for the North Carolina Conservation Network, and Brian gets it. There were several times in our conversation where I found myself getting emotional because the work that Brian is doing and how he's doing it specifically, it just everything that I stand for and everything that I want to be in the world and the values that I hold true to my heart, like this guy got it and he's doing this work for the people that I actually inherently care most about. I care about everybody, but man, the people where I come from, that's what set me off on my mission to help people be healthier and happier by sharing stories is the people of Eastern North Carolina. Now, Brian works all over North Carolina, but a lot of what the work that the NC Conservation Network does deals with issues that are happening, environmental issues that are happening due to the farms that we have. And a lot of our farms, our chicken farms and hog farms are in Eastern North Carolina. And a lot of them disproportionately affect people of color, uh, people who are poor, people who really don't tend to have a voice to stand up to to something as big as the agricultural industry uh, in America. And so Brian does, does the work of sharing the stories, the untold stories of these people to give the little guy a fighting chance. And I, for one, like this is what I support and this is what I love so much about storytelling is this is a way to do it with when you don't have the tools and power and resources as you know whom you might be going up against which often we don't the one thing you do have is the ability to share stories and if you're someone like brian you have a platform with the nc conservation network and you you do have a good social media game you you have the ability to get these stories out there to a wider audience so that you can inspire that action to help those in need Brian and I talked uh, for a while, and he is uh, he's an impressive dude. I mean, I got to say, like, he spent time in the legal world, and he spent time in politics, and he's always been, he's always wanted to make the world a better place since he was a kid. I was a young dummy before I got to the point where I actually wanted to help people and help the world in, in any way, and this guy was always an out, outdoorsman, but, the, you know, he knew from a young age that he wanted to do something with his life, and so... He kept pivoting and kept pivoting and found himself in this position where he gets to do all the things and, 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 and use all the skills that he built over his career, but he gets to really pursue his purpose. And isn't that what we're all looking for? Um, I just, uh, this was a good one for me. Um, again, <laughs> you know, we weren't even, we were kind of talking about these vague concepts and you'll hear it. And, and I just was like, he was just, man, he inspired me. You know, oftentimes I'm 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 the one sharing, you know, the beauty and the power of of storytelling. But the words that he was using, uh, it really it really proved to me that he gets it. And he's definitely somebody that I would want to 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 be an ally of and help him in any way just because I support what he's trying to do and and how he's trying to accomplish that. So you guys are in for a treat with this one. I'm going to stop talking so that we can get to the lovely mission and purpose and storytelling ability of Brian Powell. Check it out. So you grew up in Dayton and then you ended up going to UNC? 
I did. I went to uh, UNC Law, actually. So I, I went down to Chapel Hill for law school. And as many people do when they uh, stay in Chapel Hill for a few years, just fell in love with the area, fell in love with North Carolina. And uh, it's the southern side of heaven. So Oh, it, my God. We uh, done converted the Ohioan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so, I mean, was that part of it? Because sometimes when I talk to people, I travel a lot. When they talk about flying into RDU, we take it for granted, or I took it for granted growing up here. But so many people, if they're from L.A. or New York or something or anywhere, Ohio, when they fly into RDU and see the, like, just greenery and just, like, trees, they're, like, blown away by that. Was it, Was the, at that time, was, like, just the environmental feel of the state had did that have anything to do with it or were you like an outdoorsy person yeah I was I mean I, I grew up as an outdoorsy person you know uh camping with my dad mm-hmm. and 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 all of that kind of stuff and I actually moved to North Carolina for school uh after living in Colorado for a couple of years so I grew up in Ohio but then I, I moved out there and I was up in Vail in the mountains snowboarding gotcha. and hiking and doing all that <laughs> kind of stuff so I absolutely love the outdoors yeah. and and you know preserving our outdoor spaces and yeah. the environment and everything has always been something that was close to my heart. And so, uh, I went down to Carolina and, uh, you know, I took a lot of environmental law courses and right, things like that. Yeah. So, and professor Hornstein at UNC, he doesn't teach environmental law anymore, but he does teach a few other courses. One of the best professors I've ever had mm. an award-winning guy, uh, for anyone who's listening, who might be able to take a class from Professor Hornstein, definitely do it. Aren't those professors awesome? The ones that just like you remember the rest of your life. Like, yeah. There's one or two that just like that, that class or that, just that person will never leave. You know, there's a lot that you just totally forget. Like who did I learn trigonometry? from? Yeah, exactly. There's so many, I can't even picture the faces of half my professors, but yeah, every now and then one sticks and I had him for a couple of different things, but anyway, so I, uh, I enjoyed those courses and uh, it was kind of a, I was a journalism, uh, graduate and undergrad too, journalism and political science. And mm-hmm. so I was kind of split between, uh, doing journalism, first amendment kind of mm. stuff, media stuff and environmental stuff. And I also got into some criminal justice work when I was there. So it was a, a kind of a mix of stuff. That's, this sounds very familiar. Yeah. I was in, <laughs> so I initially went to, uh, Campbell university okay. and I was in pre-law for like trust management, like financial estate stuff. I didn't, you know, and I ended up hating Campbell. (laughs) If you know anything (laughs) about it, it's like in the middle of nowhere. And I transferred, ended up going to state and at the time, but I was always into movies and art and writing and theater. And so, uh, at the time when I transferred, I was like, man, I'm just going to go for like my passion, but I was into a lot of different things. Like it sounds like you are. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I wasn't sure. So at what point did you realize that like, all right, I'm not going to really pursue law. Did you change? Did you end up with that major? Well, I never. So when I, when I, when I went to law school, it was never really with the intent of being a lawyer, lawyer. Uh, So that was never super on my radar. There was a point in time in which I thought, well, maybe I want to be a public defender Mm -hmm. uh, and do that kind of thing. But I was never into like, I want to draft contracts for people or, you know, manage your divorce or, you know, do house closings. Like that was just not something that was on my (laughs) radar whatsoever. I thought that law school would uh, open up some doors Mm -hmm. and, you know, provide more of a variety of options for me, like moving forward into these different spaces that I was passionate about. Because I have always been passionate about public service Mm. in general and doing something that benefits 
you know, the world around me, leave, leave the world in when, a, a better place. When did place that start? And, I mean, that's something that, like, uh, were, as a kid, were you a, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Because that's it, not super common. Like, when you're young, you know, you're just kind of oblivious and, and running around. Were you a scout? I was not a scout, mm-hmm. uh, but I have, I have great parents uh, they who, instilled that in who instilled that in me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess bred me books and all kinds of stuff when I was little that had some of those values, I guess, inside of it. Was there anything that you did as a kid that, like you know, in, in terms of that, like, did you do community service or did you do like volunteer work? Yeah, sure. So, uh, growing up in, in high school and I'm trying to think if I did anything before that. Yeah, I guess I did. I mean, I, I would always participate actually going back to elementary school in different fundraisers to raise money for different causes, Mm -hmm. diabetes, cystic fibrosis, Mm. a bunch of different things like that. And then I was, you know, I participated in service organizations in high school and, and that kind of thing as well. What what t- uh, type of like high schooler were you? What, what were you into other than doing good for the world? Because <laughs> I wasn't there yet when I was well, sixteen. Yeah, that was. Uh, I don't know. Were you an I, athlete? I played soccer. Yeah, I uh, I played soccer. I was you know I was in this service organization. There were a couple of other different organizations and clubs that I like tried out for a minute yeah. and I wasn't really feeling it and I back away from that. I did a lot of writing actually when I was awesome. in middle school and high school and it was a creative writing major, uh, for a couple of years in undergrad before I kind of switched that to journalism. But so I, I did some writing stuff in, in high school as well. It's noble, right? Like, cause I, for me, <laughs> I just think back, I was kind of, I thought I was going to be a soccer player, you know, I mean, I still play, I still love the game, but like I was an athlete and even though I was in the musicals and stuff like that too, but that's where I thought I was going when I was, you know, I was an idiot. So I kind of admire, I do admire that, that like you already had that. I developed it later in life trying to do good for the world. But at that age, I'm sure I was doing volunteer stuff because my mom made me, you know what I mean? Right, like, right. But like not because I felt it in my heart. So that's impressive. Well, there's a difference between wanting to do good stuff for the world and give back and then having like a specific plan about Mm. it that I lacked Mm. I never I never had that like I'm gonna grow up and be you know a doctor who goes to you know some country and gives people um, vaccines or I'm gonna be a lawyer who's gonna do xyz like none of that has ever been kind Mm. of laid out for me so I was just doing kind of what I felt like I should be doing in the moment at the Mm. time and then I've kind of followed my path um, going that way since then so so when did you, f- how long have you been in environmental work? When did you graduate from UNC? So I graduated from UNC in 2009. Okay. And then I actually worked in, in death penalty litigation work for a year Yikes. after that. That's heavy. Yeah, it was uh, around a, a law called the Racial Justice Act, which has been undone by the North Carolina legislature. And I worked over in Durham at the Center for Death Penalty Litigation. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so back in... I'm trying to think of when the law was passed, 2008 or nine, I think. It might have been a little bit earlier than that. They passed a law called the Racial Justice Act, and basically what it did was it allowed uh, people who were on death row in the state of North Carolina who are you know, disproportionately people of color, mm-hmm. uh, the way that we implement capital punishment in the United States is, is very, very unequal um, in terms of uh, racial equality. And this would have allowed people on death row to present a case to a judge, 
saying, hey, the way that the jury was chosen in my case or in my sentencing case or the way that the district attorney behaved in my case or historically mm. was, uh, was affected by race. There, race played into it where it should not have played into mm. it. And therefore, my capital sentence should be undone. Mm. And if they're successful, then they would just, it would be a life sentence yeah. rather than uh, execution. Yeah. And so that's, that's what the aim of the law was. And it allowed for a lot of different kinds of evidence to come in that weren't allowed to be in the previous cases or, yeah. or weren't looked at. Uh, you could see which jurors were being dismissed by the prosecutors um, when they were choosing juries. You know, was it, or are you dismissing all of the black people in this jury? Yeah. Or uh, you could also look at the, the history of who was being prosecuted or who was being charged with capital crimes versus non-capital mm -hmm. crimes, and see whether people were pursuing the death penalty disproportionately for people who were black. And actually the real indicator is the race of the victim. Mm. Um, it's uh, if the victim is white, you are far more likely mm -hmm. to get a capital uh, charge brought against you. So that's what, that's what we did. And you know, you're pouring through over at the Supreme court and court of appeals, you're pouring through all these records and testimony and jury voir dire and the facts of some of these cases are pretty pretty brutal uh to to be digging through on mm -hmm. a daily basis but it was interesting work i think it was i think it was good work the racial justice act was repealed in full i think 2012 something like that so there wasn't a whole lot of work in this space that was done at the time it was lauded by people across the country as like whoa this is a really good this is a really good law this mm -hmm. is really progressive for yeah. the south especially and you know it's going to set this great example for how we can prosecute or should prosecute capital crimes and then it was just completely undone when republicans took the legislature um back and so there were a couple of successful cases, but not a whole lot of work got done on that. Uh, and about that time, I moved up to D.C. for a little while and mm. did some like media-related research work, political work, and then came back down here. So I've only been doing environmental work truly um, as the focus of my profession for like four years, three and a half years, something like that. So that job in D.C., is that when you started kind of transitioning into media? Yeah, uh, yeah. You got your J school kind of like background there, yeah. right? And you're a writer, so you've always been kind of attracted to that as well. Um, when you came back to North Carolina after the D.C. job, where did you land? I landed at the North Carolina Conservation Network. Went in, straight there. So that's in Raleigh. You've been there for how many years now? So I've been there since 2016. Okay. So a few years yeah. and in the role that you're in now and which is, and tell me what that is. Yeah. So, uh, right now I'm the communications director there and I, I do a lot of different things, but Were you doing that in 2016 when you came back, or? I was, okay. I was, I was hired to do that. And that's what I, that's what I came down to do. What do you think? Like, what do you think made them hire you for that position? Had you been doing that sort of stuff already? Uh, I mean, I know that we, you know, the DC thing was media related. So maybe you were moving in that direction, but directing the whole 
comms operations is significant. Yeah, yeah. So I let, I mean, I led a, I led a pretty large team in DC of media researchers basically. So I, I had kind of, uh, you know, some relationships with media people. Mm -hmm. I had this experience managing a large team who were doing research writing yeah, and, yeah, and that yeah. kind of thing. And so I think they appreciated that experience. I, you know, I had some environmental, like I had, I had an understanding of kind of the landscape uh, yeah. down here, both politically and, and mm. in the environmental yeah, yeah, yeah. realm specifically. So yeah, it was a, it was a good fit. Uh, How do you feel about like the job? Cause that seems to be like where you're starting to really marry your passions. Yeah, no, it, it's awesome. Yeah. I love it. And you know, I, I love, I love DC, but it, you know, I do. It, <laughs> <laughs> It's its own beast. It's man. its own beast. Yeah. And so there was always like, I, I got to get back to North Carolina. It's, you know, I want to, I just got to get out of here. I feel you. Man. And so it was, it was the perfect fit. Everybody there is great. Uh, the work is great. The work is challenging. Sure. It's a passion uh, to be fighting for the environment, for public health, for uh, environmental justice. But the the political atmosphere is a particularly challenging one for this work. So it's, yeah, uh, and it's a pretty large organization, right? It's uh, it's smaller than than where I was coming from in DC. Sure. But it's yeah, it's about uh, I don't know twenty five people, something like mm -hmm. that. So, and it's definitely large in what it's trying to accomplish. Yeah, we've got we've got uh, you got your hands in a lot of different things it seems. We have a we have a, a lot of campaigns that we're working on. We have a pretty large reach as far as the North Carolina environmental um, organizations go. I think we're probably in the top uh, 3 biggest in terms of yeah. what our reach is and and you know, our lists and what we're able to accomplish. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an exciting place to be working. It's challenging. And what are the programs you're most focused on? Because it's not just environment. Like the racial uh, equality and equity issue is still something that's in that, right? Even though it's the conservation network, right? Yeah. No, that? absolutely. So a lot of the work that we do and, and a lot of the work that I focus on is environmental justice work, mm. which is, you know, when we look at where landfills, toxic landfills or toxic waste storage sites are located in the United States. When we look at where all of the like massive factory farming operations are in the United States, when we look at where all of the big like wood pellet processing plants and, you know, all of these industries, they've, they've moved into rural parts of the state and in North Carolina in particular, they're all of these kinds of things are disproportionately located in communities of color, yeah. particularly rural, rural communities of color, um, particularly black communities and, and indigenous communities. Yeah, that's I, so I grew up in eastern North Carolina where all those factory farms are, hog farms, chickens. So that's like those are my people. That's where I grew up yeah. in these poor, poor areas, these poor areas of poor counties you know the right. poorest in in the state and, and so that's something that's kind of close to home for me and i see a lot too the wood pellets and stuff i'm not i'm not as familiar with but with the, the farms and the and everything that comes from that whole process uh, you can't yeah you can't drive through samson county dupont county especially before storm without smelling <sighs> the hog waste that they're spraying on all of the fields and the, and that stuff you know gets sprayed 
across the homes of the people who are living nearby who might not be a part of those processes who were in many cases there long before these huge, huge operations moved in. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's challenging. It's important work, I think, because rural America, uh, especially, uh, the communities of color in rural America are almost like the most forgotten or least looked at communities around these days. And they're also being impacted by not just all of these pollution things, but a lot of East North Carolina is in the 500 year floodplain mm-hmm. and 100 year floodplain because those lands were, you know, people got pushed into those places a long time ago because they were the less desirable lands in the first place. And now we're seeing as more and more intense storms come through here, as Florence comes slowly through here and all that stuff, they're also getting hit with flooding mm-hmm. and everything that comes with that too. So, um, that's, that is the, I mean, we're about a year out and some change from Florence and I did some work, uh, down there when that was happening last year, man, that, when that kind of thing happens, it's, it's devastating in every sense of the word, right? We kind of throw that word around a lot, but these towns are completely underwater. These poor little tiny towns that nobody's ever heard of, but like the whole town would be underwater. And it's like, they're not going to recover for years, maybe longer, you know? And I grew up, so I'm, uh, 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 maybe a little bit old, older than you. Um, but I grew up and I was in high school or about to graduate during, um, Floyd in like 99 and there's towns that still haven't recovered from that yep. Princeville outside yeah. of like Tar- Tarboro, mm-hmm. like that the whole town, like when I, when I say that, I mean, water was up to like power lines, like the whole town was underwater and there are these poor communities that are forgotten about. So how much aid do you think they're really getting? Right. And then they haven't recovered and we're, we're literally 20 years later. You and Princeville is a great example because it, it was the first incorporated black town right. in, maybe in America, definitely in North Carolina. De- yeah. And, and they, they had suffered then and they just keep getting hit over and over and over again. And I mean, at this point, there are a lot of people who are just saying we can't, we can't even rebuild anymore. We're right. just, we're gone. I mean, it's, it's killing this historic town and, and a lot of towns like it in Eastern North Carolina. And I, I was just talking to somebody I don't know, about a month ago uh, up from Sampson County who said, you know, look, all the blue tarps, like there's, you still drive down the roads, you still see the blue tarps. And those mm-hmm. are the, like the FEMA tarps and stuff that they get to, you know. Help. So yeah, people haven't begun to, you know, rebuild their homes in many cases. Um, I know, I know a guy whose house was hit, uh, the year before and what was it, Matthew, and then mm-hmm. hit again in Florence. He, he rebuilt, got hit again in Florence and got torn down. It's just, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. But those are the, those are the stories that I'm trying to draw attention to in my work and trying to get the media to pay attention to, trying to get the public to pay attention more closely to what is happening in these places that are kind of outside these big media markets, these places in between Wilmington and Raleigh. And those people need, you know, all of our attention and all of our, all of our help. So that last point is, uh, is really why we're here today. I mean, the podcast is a storytelling lab. That's what we, um, you know, specialize in is sharing stories. And specifically my mission is, and why I like to talk to people like you is my mission is to try to, you know, 
make the world happier and healthier by sharing these stories, by sharing stories of change, right? I mean, I know that that's how uh, we inspire people to take action. I know that's how we create empathy so people can understand what someone is going through, especially in these like forgotten about groups that happen all the time, whether this is mental health, whether this is environmental health, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's important. Um, it's a way to connect with people. And um, it's something I'm, I'm super passionate about. So I want to I want to know, I want to learn what do you consider as communication director of the NC Conservation Network? What do you consider your job to be? So, I mean, at first, I want to say developing that empathy and that focus. Very important. I think when I came down to North Carolina Conservation Network, there was beginning to be a transition happening. It's still happening. I'm trying to speed that transition up, but the environmental movement is moving from, we want to focus on like clean water and speak for the trees and all of these kinds of, we have to protect the earth and the ecosystem for its own sake mm -hmm. kind of messaging, which I completely agree with and I'm on board with, to something that is more human centered to something that is talking about, well, okay, yes, it's great to have clean water, but why do we want clean water? Because dirty water is killing people. Uh, it's, it, there are faces behind the missions that we're trying to accomplish and pivoting to those people, to the people who are vulnerable, to the people who are impacted by pollution. That is what I think is important. I think that's what drives political action, that's what drives political, uh, public attention, public opinion, those kinds of things, because we connect with one another. And, and why does this matter to me? You know, that's what people exactly. ask, like, like why, why do I care? And a lot of times with something as big as environmental health, right? Don't like this huge thing, like how do I, we make a difference? We need to personify it to, for people to understand it, like bring it down on a human level. This is something that, uh, you know, I told you before we started about the health and happiness storytelling series that we had. And this was a big question for the environmental storytellers that, that we hosted who spoke was like, how do we, you know, how do we inspire people to take action? And you have to do that. You have to put it on a human level. So I'm 100 I'm percent with you. And I'm glad that that transition is happening because that's the only way to really, you know, affect change or, you know, the most powerful way I would say. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And some of the things that we're working on, including the farm stuff, you know, we're lifting up people who are in those communities who are experiencing those things, bringing them to Raleigh, getting them into one-on-one face-to-face -on -one conversations or telling their stories. But there are other things like chemicals that are being put into rivers, not just, uh, you know, one river, but all of the rivers in North Carolina, we've put a lot of attention on one particular chemical called Gen X in the Cape Fear River going down to Wilmington, where there's a huge cancer cluster currently. And uh, finding those, you know, that intersection between the environment and health uh, is just hugely important. When you talk about drinking water and people can say, you know, look at this story and realize like chemicals in the river, that equals chemicals in the glass of water that my child is, you know, pouring from the sink. That's the picture. That's the story. That's the person that, you know, we want to focus on that. I want to focus on that's going to get people to, to move. When, when I, um, 
lead workshops or, you know, speak at conferences. This, this, what you're talking about right now is something I have to emphasize a lot to tell the, you know, talk about or tell the story of the macro issue through a micro story, you know, and that's what you literally just said, like, you got to reduce it to the smallest, you know, version of that story. Like, this is your child with this glass water, and this is where it originates. But if you don't hook them with that small story that they can relate to and understand, they'll never understand something so big or data stats. Like nobody can resonate with a hundred thousand people or, you know, 10 trillion gallons of water. Like that's too big. It's It's unfathomable. It's not. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. But when you say, you know, that's why you see politicians all the time say like, I had a conversation with Kathy in Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, Because like we can, we know a Kathy, right? Um, But yeah, so that's, that's something that I have to, uh, to emphasize all, all the time. So, let me ask you a question. Uh, I love you're speaking my language. You understand how to get across to people, how to convey the information you want to, but also evoke that empathy so that they can understand. So clearly, you guys are doing something right since 2016. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, how do you how do you attack it on a day to day, right? Like, how do you break it down into like a- actionable steps? What do you try to do in your communication and marketing efforts? Is it like an Instagram post a day? Is it an email? You know, like how do you, what's the, the tactic? Yeah. Tactically there's, there's a lot of different things, right? So there, there are Instagram, I will say our Instagram is less human focused and still very much. These are pretty pictures of natural spaces and that kind of thing. Uh, well, those do well on Instagram. I mean, you got to use the platform for what it's for, like visual, you know, right. Especially like nature photos. They're big. Yeah, people love them. Right. So, and animals, I mean, yeah, forget about it. But <laughs> if, uh, when on Facebook and on Twitter, uh, those are the, the other two primary social media mm-hmm. uh, tools that we'll, that we'll use. Twitter will be mostly uh, sharing media stories that include the the people and the stories that we want to lift up. And mm-hmm. so we can share a link to a media story that maybe we've worked with a journalist on and pull a quote about one of those people that we want to focus on and, and put that on there or on Facebook. I mean, that's a combination of events that we might be putting on that could connect the public with some of the people, uh, that we want to, uh, um, educate them on or it could be events that we hold in a community where we're trying to to build more connective tissue with people in an impacted community because a lot of it is about developing relationships too and you can't talk to people about what their experiences are down east if you are just parachuting in for a second or you're calling them on the telephone for a minute and that's it. And you, yep. you're extracting something from them that you think is useful in your mission and then mm-hmm. piecing out. Dude. You you have to be you have to you have to build yourself into the community. You have to build trust. You have to become a part of it. You have to be there and you have to be authentic and authentically there for them for a long time. And I think a lot of organizations miss that part of it. I talk to journalists, I talk to other organizations who they just want to know like so who's the, you know, who's the person with this rare type of cancer and, mm-hmm. you know, they've got this incredible story or who's this other person? How do I find more people impacted by this type of pollution or that type of thing? And you can't just, you know, 
grab and go. Uh, you just, you're not going to get it and you're not going to really affect change. You're not going to really help those communities that you say you want to help unless you're just there and you're investing in it over the course of a long period of time. It just takes time and authenticity. And uh, that's, I mean, you know, I know it, it's like this fast pace. We want to like have some metrics to show donors or whatever clicks on our news page, but like it's slow and deliberate and you just have to do it if you are really meaningful about wanting to, to make the change and connect with the people that you're trying to help. I uh, honestly, I'm like, just got emotional just hearing it. Like that's your, I don't need to tell you that you're a hundred percent right, but like so many people miss that and anything is that slow, deliberate growing, right? Anything that you're trying to grow. Uh, but what it reminded me of, and I've been, cause we have been dealing a lot with mental health lately with some of the projects that we're doing and, and also the storytelling series, health and happiness. And that's a common thing I see too. There's a, I've started to like put this message out there. People say like, Hey, you know, let's say PTSD or suicide or something like that, uh, addiction. Hey, you know, just so you know, I'm here for you. You hear that a lot. You see it on Facebook, you know, let people know that you're there for them. And I deal with a lot of these issues within my own family and friends. And, you know, I'm, I'm close to a lot of people dealing with these serious issues. And what I've learned in the past few years is you can't, just saying it is not enough. You have to actually be there. And so you're echoing, your, you know, that same sentiment when you're like, you can't just pop into these areas and be some like savior for a day and then peace out. You have to be there and do the work. And honestly, like it parallels so many different things. Our communication, our messaging, the stories that we share, it's the same thing. You can't just do one and I've done my work. It has to be consistent. It has to be over the long term. And so like, that just nugget that you just delivered was just amazing. And it's so true. And we always want a quick fix. And what's the one thing that I can do that solves it? And it's like the work, the work yeah. is the one thing it's that you hard. can do. I mean, it's hard. That's the thing. And if people were honest with themselves, they'd realize a lot of them aren't actually up for it. And uh, unfortunately that I think that's the case, but if they are, then you got to go about it the right way. It's a long way. It's a, it's a hard way. It's a, it's ultimately a good and fulfilling thing to, you know, to build ties and to actually be there for people and, and truly make a lasting relationship and bond and change and help for, um, you know, whoever it is that you want to be, uh, trying to be there for. Mm, man, uh, I'm so glad that I invited you here because like all the <laughs> concepts and the words that you're saying are like the things that I am trying to share with the world right now too. So I'm, I'm really like lit up about this. Let me ask you, um, what about video storytelling? Have you guys utilized that at all? Because, uh, I'm starting to see a, a lot of brands now because we have this ability to put our own content out there and streaming channels and like a lot of, uh, I mean, many organizations now are creating their own content, original content. There's a, uh, a cancer organization that I work with have for, for many years that we create a documentary series and we release like a straight up six, six to eight minute documentary every month. And the effect that that has by telling those stories in this format is profound. Have you guys ever utilized anything like that to, to tell these stories of these people, like a short little three minute, five minute documentary of the people down East and what they're going through. 
Yes and no. Uh, we have on a very limited basis, and, and it was specifically for some communities down uh, in Duplin and Sampson counties related mm-hmm. to the hog farms that I mentioned. And that was impactful, but m- more often we are helping other organizations who might be doing that, mm-hmm. uh, connecting them with resources or providing support in different ways that we can. We don't, we don't have the platform that really would make that super, super effective. And we don't have the resources to do a whole lot of video production. Yeah. But we've done some simple, like, we're going to like travel and, you know, record some interviews with some people that we've been, you know, building relationships with and very like simple, tell me your story. Yeah. yeah. You know. But that's what it's about. It's the story. And we've got, you know, I, I host a, a radio program and podcast that's in a partnership with WNCU over here in Durham. Oh, and awesome. so we'll have some of those folks, um, yeah. you know, lift them up through the audio, audio airwaves and, well, dude, and, and audio stories instead of the visual medium. For, for audio, man. Yeah. So, so we'll do that kind of thing, but not a ton of video uh, production yet. It's something that I've been pushing on. We're trying to develop a plan for it because you're right. I mean, it's extremely impactful and these stories in particular now you're starting to see like uh, uh uh you know big documentaries that are sharing these stories i think food inc was probably the first one that started featuring our people right right, right. um but now uh, and of course we have full frame film festival here, here in durham and so there's a lot of short docs and feature docs that are featuring this and so since i work in that like even smaller like three minute pieces that's what i was thinking i was like oh you know i wonder if that would would help you guys. But the audio storytelling is definitely something that's a powerful tool that we have right now. Full frame. Yeah. And full frame's been starting to hype and screen some more environmentally themed um, docs and and working films down in Wilmington is working with a lot of, Oh, I know them. um, Yeah. Yeah. A lot of filmmakers down there who are doing great work on environmental issues in North Carolina. And we worked with them to help screen a documentary called The Devil We Know, um, which featured uh, one of the directors was out of Asheville. Mm-hmm. And it was about this Gen X uh, chemical in water mm. and DuPont putting in the water. It's actually a, a fictionalized version of that called Dark Water starring Mark Ruffalo that's coming uh, yeah, out yeah, in, yeah. Uh, in yeah. this month. Soon. Yeah. So, and it's a great documentary. So we, we helped coordinate some screenings around, uh, gotcha, around the state uh, because it is... It's so impactful. It's such a great way to, to tell these stories, to, to engage people in what otherwise, in the human element that we've been talking about. It's not science class. It's not, you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, yeah. these are the faces of the people who are impacted yeah. by this thing. So yeah, it's a, it's a great medium. We haven't done the very super short stuff yet, but yeah. that's, but just obviously that's the way to go. There. Yeah. Working films, they, they, um, uh, are great. And, and, literally that's that is threaded in their mission like they tell those kinds of stories i totally support what they're doing tell me about the podcast so it's called the dirt uh it is i mean you know it's on all of the podcast places but the 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 bigger it's more of a so we we partnered with wncu 90.7 to produce a a radio program Uh mostly focused on environmental justice also environmental policy, what's going on at the legislature, you know, what are the environmental bills that are being pushed through, that kind of thing. And the idea at the outset was this, we want to get this FM audio. In fact, originally we were based out of WSHA in Raleigh, mm-hmm. which is now 
has been bought and so that's gone so now we're at WNCU but we wanted we wanted to reach their FM audience people who were not necessarily already in our circles yeah. who weren't necessarily yeah. environmentally minded and subscribing to our lists and like all of that kind of stuff people who might not know a single thing like not, might not even know that there is a hog farm in eastern north carolina a lot of people know right and so that was a way that that we have been trying to you know, reach people who mm-hmm. are kind of outside of these circles. And then basically I just take that, I take the digital version of that program and gotcha. I chop the, you know, public service ads out and post that up as a podcast. That's called repurposing. There you go. <laughs> and we'll sometimes do some original content. Yeah. And, and, and most of the time I'm, I'm just recording, I'll record an interview in my office or in some other place and then I'll bring it in to plug into the show or we'll go out in the field or go down to, wherever and, and interview people. And has that been effective for you? Like having that new tool, that new format to put it's, it out on? Yeah, it's, it's great. Awesome, uh, it's great. It, it, it has allowed us to build better relationships with journalists that we've featured mm-hmm. and get them more interested in our issues. It's helped Which build is better. always good to have yeah. them on your team. Yeah, it's helped build better relationships with the people who are impacted by a lot of the pollution that we're fighting. It it it's helped kind of other environmental organizations and advocates and, and experts uh, build relationships with them and tell their stories. So it's it's an interesting, fun thing for people to do. It's a great educational tool. Mm-hmm. And beyond just educating the people who are listening to it, it's helping build all of that connective tissue with the, you know, the communities and the people that we want to bring closer and closer together. It, it, it always comes back to building relationships, right? Those lasting relationships. And that's the same thing I try to use storytelling to do and help people use storytelling to do. Um, well, that's about it, but I want to know what's next. What are, you, what are you focused on for 2020, which is crazy that that's a year that's coming up. You never know what's going to come up. Uh, one thing on our radar is chickens. Uh, <laughs> just chickens <laughs> chickens everywhere chickens chickens so chicken farms are the new hog farms they Dude. are they're basically completely unregulated in north carolina and their chicken waste is as bad uh, as hog waste yeah, is yeah, yeah a lot of people don't realize this yeah. that because they think they're like smaller that they do less damage chicken farms are terrible yeah and and they can just pop up out of nowhere i talked to a guy not too long ago uh out west who the giant chicken house ten thousand chickens popped up like 50, 100 yards from his house. They didn't have to do anything. There was no, you know, public input period, nothing. And then he had to, he had to move. He had to sell his house at yeah, a loss because no it drove his property no values yeah. down. And there was ammonia in the air causing respiratory problems and all kinds of stuff. So, <sighs> yeah. Let me, this, this, this will probably be our final question. Uh, this came up a lot at the storytelling night, the environmental health one. You know, sometimes it seems like overwhelming, and like, when the hell are people gonna like, what you just talked about that, you know, the destruction that that chicken farm is doing, where everybody on the other side is just focused on the bottom line and dollar, you know, th- that opportunity, like, what's it gonna take, you know, to see some real change? And it, it's happening, you know, the conversation is definitely, but my God. So, so the question is, how do you, how do you keep up with your day-to-day approach in combating this when it's something that's so big? It's hard. It's really hard uh, because it's it's daunting. Most of the time we're playing defense instead mm-hmm. of being able to gain ground in our causes. We're just hoping that more and more bad stuff doesn't come down. 
and it's it's discouraging and and we also want to be aware when we're telling these stories not to just be constantly talking about the sky is falling and you know everything's terrible and everything's bad and find a way to provide a spark of hope and you know something forward some vision of what the future could look like or you know where we're going to get there how we're going to get there and you know it's it's tough uh, but we'll focus on some good things every now and then. All of the state's coal ash disposal ponds were uh, slated to be cleaned up this year. They were assigned to be cleaned up. That was huge. That mm-hmm. was a fight that has been going on for many, many years, far beyond, far before I got here. And so that was something that we took a minute to celebrate. And, of course, it's going to go through an appeal process. And, you know, the whole actually cleaning it up is going to take a long time. And the people who are living on bottled water next to them are going to be doing that for a while. We can't forget about them. But they and us, we took a little while to celebrate that decision when it was made. So when those things come through, you got to grab onto it and you got to celebrate it and, you know, lift each other up and, and just, like, sit in that for a little while before you get back into, you know, all the bad stuff. It's the mm. best way. Brian, I appreciate it, man. This has been amazing. I want to talk to you more and get to know you more, but thank you, man. Like this has been awesome. My pleasure. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.